Hey, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is episode 34, and this one is titled, Is Heavy Lifting Good for Pitchers? So this is a topic that I think is very polarizing, especially now that the internet is uh, insane and filled with insane people. So my big thing is I want to be the voice of reason because I play this game. I've been injured in this game. I've been healthy in this game. Uh, I once threw slow. I also threw hard. And uh, I train lots of young pitchers you know, for a living here at Warbird Academy. And the population that we'll, we deal with, I think, is very representative of normal America. So we're not one of those uh, academies which, if you have a ton of pro guys, that's awesome. Like, congratulations. We cater to 8-year-olds, 15-year-olds, Division One kids, and some pro guys. So we have a very diverse population that, again, I think represents what normal America would see in any, you know, whether it's a metro area or a small area. We have a very wide range of populations. So for me, weight training is extremely important. It's, it needs to be part of every young athlete's, uh, you know, their playbook, their routine, because if they're not, then all their peers are. We just see how fast the bigger, more physical kids, how they excel in sports, how they climb the ladder faster, and it's, it's only going to get worse, right? So, you know, obviously, like, velocity has climbed in Major League Baseball, so pitchers on average throw I think it's more like three miles per hour harder now than they did five years ago. And, you know, that's important stuff. So the standard, the bar is being raised for everybody. And with that, there's going to be consequences. So we can't all just continue to put more force through all of our joints, throw harder, run faster, jump higher, and expect that our bodies aren't going to have some sort of, I wouldn't say fit, but there's going to be some pushback. You know, human beings aren't necessarily being built differently but they're training their bodies differently than they ever have before, and they're putting, again, new stress, bigger stress. Uh, and, again, there's going to be something that comes back where we go, okay, wow, maybe this thing that's creating all the velocity, which I do think is arm care and, and strength training and all this stuff, it's also that double-edged sword where now maybe too many players are producing more force than they can handle, and that's kind of why injury rates are going up. So... Like I said, we'll talk about this tonight. There's there's a lot out there on the internet. There's a lot out there on social media. It's very difficult to wade through for young athletes, parents, and coaches who may not be, you know, strength coaches by by uh, by profession. So I'm gonna hopefully give you a little bit of the voice of reason as we kind of tackle this. So I'm gonna tell you first how I got started with weightlifting. I never lifted a weight until I was a freshman in college. So for me, jumping into Division One baseball and being suddenly thrown into, you know, agility drills, high-level strength and conditioning, all this stuff, I was pretty unathletic. Uh, you know, my my best friend back home, Andrew, will admit that he thought I was going to get cut from the team as a freshman just because I was so clumsy going around, you know, our agility cone drills, all this stuff. But I just basically did what my strength coach, Fred Canner, told me to do, and I did it with all of me. I did it with to the best of my ability, I worked hard, and I was often one of the last guys to leave the weight room. So for me, I saw big performance gains. You know, my dad is a little bit of a, a barrel-chested runner, which is kind of like an oxymoron, but for sort of like a runner's build, like the Bluets, we have long legs, but we have like kind of big chests and, and backs, um, which again is not, like my dad was a champion runner in his day, and you don't see as many guys like with as much upper body mass as he kind of carries. So 
for me, I've always been a person who could put on weight fast. You know, I could cut weight and I could put on weight really, really quickly. So for me, as a 172-pound freshman, I was suddenly trapped deadlifting a lot. I was squatting a lot. I was learning all these these lifts. I was doing dumbbell bench presses and chin-ups and inverted rows and RDLs, all these things that I'd never done before. And, you know, I threw on a good 10 pounds, 15 pounds my freshman year, and I got leaner. So I suddenly became this kid who used to be, like, you know, a in-shape, active, high school, 170-pound kid, which is pretty standard. And then I suddenly became this guy with, like, a solid six-pack and, you know, some bulging muscles here. There it was weird. And my velocity went up accordingly. So as a freshman, I was 78 to 81. I'd occasionally touch an 82 or 83. Uh, but by the end of my freshman year, again, up 15 or 20 pounds and down some uh, some baby fat, I was 84 to 87, something like that. So you say, okay, strength training works. You know, this is stuff that I did all year. I worked on my mechanics. I kind of kinks or got some kinks out of my mechanics. My arms started feeling better than I had. That's kind of a longer, different story for another day. But the point is, strength training, 15 pounds of muscle, it was a big deal. And I saw the benefits, and, uh, you know, it was clear on the field that it was important. So for the rest of my college career, I hit the weights hard. I lifted heavy. I didn't shy away from any of that stuff. You know, I eventually could, you know, trap deadlift 450. We didn't straight bar deadlift in my college. Um, I got my squat into the mid 300s. Uh, I didn't break 400, which is a long-term goal of mine until I was 26, I think, when I was uh, having time off from my second Tommy John. And uh, I got to the point where I was strong enough to be considered strong by any, like, normal gym goer standard. So I wasn't a powerlifter strong. I wasn't an Olympic weightlifter strong, but I was a very above average, strong Division One athlete, and that was fine. I could hang my head on that. And uh, but at a, at a certain point throughout my career, I realized that there were different spots where I had to start to veer onto another trail. So the trail that I was following was great, uh, but I needed to do other things when my buckets got filled. So. If you follow Mike Reinold, who was a former Boston Red Sox PT, he's one of the, the great guys out there in the industry trying to give good information uh, to protect the arms and, you know, and legs. He's an all-around great PT, but he's huge on baseball injuries. He's one of the best researchers out there. So if you don't follow Mike Reinold, make sure you do. Um, Mike, when he presents, he always talks about buckets. So when you're talking about the training needs of an athlete, especially, a, you know, let's talk about a baseball pitcher, He's got a couple different buckets. So one, number one is his physical maturity. So when you're 13, your bucket's only half filled. When you're 24, your maturity bucket is filled, right? When you you have a strength training bucket, you have a arm care bucket, you have a pitching mechanics bucket, you have a, you know, uh, arm conditioning bucket. How much do you throw? All that sort of stuff. So with all this, to be a very well-rounded, um, hopefully sort of bulletproof pitcher who gets as much performance out of his body as he can, you want to have all of your buckets filled. So you don't want to have two buckets overflowing and one bucket completely empty. You want to slowly fill all of them up and fill them up relatively evenly. So that means you're not focusing solely on strength training. So that your strength training bucket is overflowing, but you never do any arm care, and your arm, arm care bucket is empty. You don't want to have do tons of strength training, and your mechanics are terrible. You know, bodybuilders don't throw gas, right? Um, you know, nutrition, all these, there's all these different things that we need to have filled up. And one of the things that I, uh, this is actually in my, I have this 
this exam that I created called the Baseball Acumen Audit that the public has never really seen, but it was for me trying to figure out how I could test the uh, intelligence of a baseball player. Not So like the baseball acumen. Um, they're savvy, how much do they know about the game, situations, all that stuff, and that sort of over time weaved itself into my course. But when, we, when we're talking about ourselves as a pitcher or any athlete in general, so what I started to think about in college was if I had a twin, and I studied philosophy, so the, the concept of a, of a doppelganger, a doppelganger, uh, which is a German word, I don't know why I use an Australian accent, because I probably don't really know a German accent, but a doppelganger is basically you in an alternate universe. So if you, the thing I, I call this the doppelganger test in my, in my exam, which is if there was another version of you in another universe, and he had, say, significantly stronger forearms, or significantly stronger legs, or he was significantly more explosive, or he ate way better than you, or he got more sleep each night. You get six hours, he gets eight and a half hours every night. Or he spends tons of time working on his mechanics. His me mechanics are just beautiful and meticulous and perfect. Would he be better than you? So if you go through your body and you should do, sort of do an audit, joint by joint, topic by topic, bucket for bucket, how much better would your doppelganger be than you? And if you can go through this and say, yeah, if there's an alternate universe where there's a version of me who has a way stronger, you know, a guy who takes way better care of his rotator cuff than I do, is he a better pitcher than you? The answer is probably yes. His arm probably feels better. He probably has better stamina. He probably doesn't fatigue out as quickly. You know, he probably throws a little bit harder too. Um, same thing with forearms. Same thing with legs. But then there's a point. So, if, like, for me as a senior in college, I could squat a ton. Like I said, I could deadlift a ton. In my doppelganger test, so say a guy can like squat 650 or something in the alternate universe, and I only squat 400. Is he a significantly better pitcher than me? The answer starts to become no when you fill your buckets up to a certain point. So that's sort of why, I, you know, I wrote an article a while back, and it was uh, just reshared recently, and I got, a, I got a couple comments on it, but people now are really excited about strength training, which is great. You know, strength training is gaining tons of steam. Kids are doing it younger. Uh, there's, you know, better coaches than ever before, and that's all great. And this whole, like, pitchers can lift heavy is also a good thing. So pitchers shouldn't be treated like these dainty little, like, ballerinas like we were for years and years and years that pitchers need to have long, lean muscle, which isn't really a thing. Muscle is muscle. Um, you know, even though Tom Brady apparently thinks he can have, like, supple muscle or something, his book is ridiculous. Uh, but anyway, so pitchers are no longer coddled, but at the same time, we have to make sure we're not losing track of what we use our joints for. So yeah, learning to deadlift, say you're holding, you're deadlifting 450 pounds, you have 225 pounds in each arm, and that arm that you pitch with, that you prize more than anything else, has 225 pounds flowing through your elbow joint, through your shoulder joint, and your body's adapting to that stress. You know, the said principle is specific adaptations to impose demands. You know, any demand that you impose on your body, your body will specifically adapt to meet it. So that means if you're always carrying around huge, heavy things, you know, your forearms will get bigger and thicker. Just that's why mechanics have super strong hands and super big forearms, right? That's why mechanics have that. Um, and so with, with baseball players, you know, we have like one shoulder bigger than the other, a forearm bigger than the other. My calf, uh, when I was playing, was noticeably bigger on my right leg than my left. 
people would point it out, and I never know, I mean, you never look at your calves, but um, all those things are specific adaptations to, again, the specifically weird imposed demands that pitching is. So as we kind of go through all this, you wonder, okay, when I can deadlift 450, uh, is deadlifting 550 better for me? Is it going to specifically make me better on the mound? Am I going to throw harder because I can deadlift an extra 100 pounds? Um, okay, well, what if it does? Okay, well, then what about going from 600 pounds to 700 pounds? What about going from 700 pounds to 800 pounds? What about 800 to 900? Where do you stop gaining velocity or stop gaining whatever it is you're seeking as a pitcher uh, going from one jump to the next? It's not a linear progression with any of this stuff. So for me, I sort of figured out that when I could deadlift about 450 and squat about 350 and do about 12 good controlled chin-ups, which shows pretty tremendous upper body strength if you can do 12 good chin-ups, uh, that was pretty much as strong as I needed to be. And being stronger than that was putting me at an increased risk of injury. Um, and I don't have statistics to prove that, so don't ask me for my research because I don't have any. Um, and... I don't know that there was really any return that I was going to get from it. So going from 450 on deadlift to 500 or 500 to 550, I didn't feel like that was going to be necessary to help me pitch better on the mound. And when we have finite training time, whether it's for arm care or for mental training, for meditation, for yoga, for flexibility, whatever it is, for sprints, for explosive stuff, again, we have all these buckets that need to be filled. And when you can deadlift 450, is that bucket overflowing? Do we need to put more deadlift weight into that bucket? Do we need to have more upper body mass and lower body mass added to our body? Um, or do we need to, at that time, turn our attention to another bucket that could probably use a little bit more, more attention? So for me, the answer is absolutely the latter. It's that when you get to a certain point, you kind of hit your set point, and then you realize, okay, I've got enough to do my job extremely well at an extremely high level, and I'm going to move on, and I'm going to allocate some of my time to other things. So most of us who have jobs, and this is something that I felt as I grew Warbird Academy over the years, you start to get pulled in more and more directions. Your personal life takes you more places. Um, you know, you just have finite energy and time to do as much as you can. So say you have three hours a day, uh, which is a lot for an off season for a pitcher, to really devote to getting better. You know, in that three hours you're going to throw, you're probably going to do some conditioning like running or jump rope or whatever. You're going to do some flexibility stuff and maybe recovery stuff, you know, like foam rolling, you know, self uh, myofascial release, self-massage, that kind of stuff to help, you know, the recovery healing process. You're going to do your strength training. Uh, you might hopefully meditate because the mental aspect of the game is huge and it's underutilized. You know, you would do all those things, but there comes a time when you're trying to put too much into one thing, and it's just going to take away from the rest. So we have to understand that our time is finite, and we have to make intelligent allocations about where it's going to go. So I, again, I firmly believe that there's no pitcher that needs to go from 500 to 600 pounds on their deadlift. I do believe that every pitcher probably needs to be strong enough to deadlift 400 pounds. They probably need to be strong enough to, deadlift, or to squat 300 pounds, to front squat at least 275 uh, to do 10 good chin-ups. I think those are, are measurable uh, measurables that they indicate that you're, you have whole body strength, you have whole body explosiveness, 
that you have enough muscle mass, usually when you can do those things, typically you have a, a certain amount of muscle mass that goes with it. And that when you can do those things, you're pretty much tapping into your body's potential as far as, you know, creating velocity from whole body, compound movements, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, I do believe that moving faster down the mound increases your velocity. Um, I wrote about that years ago, and I've sort of adjusted my views to that. But there also is a finite speed at which you can move down, you know, a seven-foot landing on a downhill 10-inch slope. So, you know, is adding to your deadlift going to push you down the mound that much faster? A, deadlifting is not very specific to, to lateral movement, so the answer is definitely no. Um, and then how strong do your quads need to be when you start to consider some of these guys that throw 95, 96, 98 miles an hour in the major leagues? Because when we're talking about strength and we're talking about strong, you know, there's a couple different types of strong. So you hear scouts, you know, they go to scouts, some like country boy, and they say, oh, man, he's a big, strong kid. I have kids that I say that about now. You know, I have 14-year-olds. I, I have a kind of a monster 14-year team that I'm the head coach of. I have some big, strong kids on that team. But when they're in the gym, they're not strong by gym standards. They're strong by natural genetics like, hey, I'm just a bigger, stronger 14-year-old than the next 14-year-old. But from, again, weight room standards, these are not big, strong kids. They're actually weak and untrained. And then, you know, so we have these guys who are naturally, quote-unquote, big and strong, but are not from gym standards, you know, how much you can deadlift, squat, bench, whatever. Uh, they're not strong from those standards. So we have sort of this like weird double standard where we sort of just visually assess someone and the power they can produce and just the way they look as a big, strong person, quote unquote. Well, how much is that worth? So we have these guys in the major leagues who are scrawny people. I mean, you take, you know, you go to the beach with 100 major league pitchers. They're not impressive guys. They have small upper bodies, smallest arms, because they need to do one job, and they need to do it well, and showing off and having beach muscles doesn't matter to them. You know, I've, I've shared that I always threw better about six or eight weeks into the season when I started to shed some of my winter weight. So every year, uh, I would work out hard, and I would get up to usually like 195 in my first couple years of pro ball, and then later became like 200, 205 as I got a little more, I don't know, maybe a little fatter and just like more of like an old man. But my playing weight was usually 195 to 205. And again, I put on muscle pretty fast on my chest and my back and my arms. So if I do any bicep curls, A, I start to get bicep tendonitis. Uh, but B, my biceps just blow up in size really fast. So I put on a little bit, I work a little bit harder and put on a little more weight than I need. Um, on my upper body in the winter, knowing that kind of like in the long summer, like my hibernation period where I'm just not going to get to lift as much as I ordinarily would, and that my pitching job is the most important thing of all, you know, lifting kind of goes by the wayside. It's over like a maintenance period in the summer where you try to, to do just enough to keep your strength up, to not get injured, um, to keep your velocity up, all that stuff, because that's the only thing that matters. The only thing that matters is you can go out there and do your job every time you're asked to do it doesn't matter if you're an animal in the weight room. It matters that you can do your job every time you're asked. So if that requires you lifting a ton, then fine. Then maybe that's how your body works. But for most people, that's not how it works. So I would, start to, I would start to just dwindle away. Every month, I'd lose a pound or two or whatever. And by the end of the season, I would be noticeably thinner in my arms, thinner in my chest, and flatter in my back. 
And when I just started to cut that first like two or three pounds, six or eight weeks later, I always came up a mile per hour or two in velocity. My arm felt better. And that was just like sort of me hitting my stride. And I could tell, I could tell that my arms sort of freed up when I lost a little bit of that like shoulder, bicep, lat, you know, chest weight. Um, and the ball came out better that way. So sure, anecdotal evidence, whatever. But I've talked to lots and lots of my peers, my former teammates, and they all shared pretty much the same sentiment that I've, I've never, I've never met a guy who says, yeah, I throw significantly better when I'm heavier and more muscular. I haven't met one guy who said that. Um, and I think it's really trendy to put on as much weight as you can and be like this jacked pitcher. And, you know, there's been a lot of seasons where, you know, in spring training, you know, I'm one of like the guys with like the bigger legs and I'm a little more physical and like some guys will notice like, oh man, like Blewett's pretty, looking pretty strong this year. Like whatever, I don't really care about that. I care about pitching well because at the end of the day, there's some fat slob who pitches extremely well and has better numbers than me. He's going to get a promotion that I want that I'm not going to get. You don't, you don't get any uh, awards, just like Kenny Power says, for being the best at exercising. So my point in all this is not to be lazy or anything like that. My point is with all this stuff, there's a minimum effective dose and that's what we want to take as pitchers. So, and that goes for every sport, not just, you know, baseball, pitching, any of that. Just think of it this way. If you had a headache and one aspirin would make your headache go away, why would you take four? Why would you take eight? Why would you take nine? You know, you hear these legendary stories about Roger Clemens and other guys and, you know, Jake Arrieta, how they have this legendary work ethic. And that's great, but have these guys tested the idea that maybe they could do less and get the same results? Um, I remember that in college I felt paralyzed that if I didn't do my running, I didn't do this. I, I, you know, sometimes your routine becomes this neuroticism where you have to do it because if you do less, you're afraid that you're going to slip off that mountain. And that's fine. That's a good fear to have. But there's also something to be said for the fact that you want to do as little as you can possibly do to get the result that you want. There's no honor. It's not smarter to outwork somebody when they can work less and get the same result as you. You know, there, there isn't medals for that. I had a teammate, um, the, late, the late Jake Labor, he unfortunately passed away, uh, I think a couple years ago. Um, great pitcher. And he had the sentiment that every time after he started, he would, uh, and he did this through his college career in North, North Dakota State, and in his, uh, his pro ball years, he played, I think, six years for the Fargo and Moorhead Red Hawks. Again, exceptional guy, exceptional human being, great pitcher, incredible competitor. Um, the baseball world was, was really missed without him. But um, Jake, he long tossed the day after all of his starts. And we were summer ball teammates in college, and then we were later teammates in Fargo for a half a summer. And I remember in the summer I, in, in college, uh, summer ball, I asked Jake, I'm like, why do you long toss after you, uh, after you start? And he's like, well, with my mechanics being as uh, efficient as they are, I don't feel like I really like tax, like tax my arm enough. And then I have to kind of long toss the next day to really like give it its full workout. And, uh, you know, so it continues to like get stronger or whatever. And I said, okay, I'm like interesting answer. Like I've never heard anyone say that before. Um, and again, if that's his thing, if that's what he finds works, that's great. Um, so a couple years, you know, you flash forward about five years actually, and we're both playing together in Fargo. And uh, he still long tosses uh, after games, after he starts the next day. 
and he was pitching at 86 to 89 for most of his pro career, which as a lefty, he was supremely successful every year. Every year he turned like 130 innings, 140 innings with like a 3-5 ERA. It's extremely consistent, good results. Um, but his velocity, 86-89, just like wasn't high enough for him to get signed into affiliated baseball. And so I asked him one day, I said, Jake, have you considered not long tossing after your starts? Maybe your arm is just a little bit chronically fatigued and you don't know it. And maybe your velocity comes up a little bit. Maybe it goes up one or two ticks and now scouts see you at 88 to 91, 92, and that's it and you're out of here. And he said, no, I, I don't think that's it. Like I've been doing this for a long time. He's like, I, I just think I need to maybe do some other stuff. He didn't really have an answer, and that was okay. But I just remember thinking, I don't know that he tested it in years. I think he, that was his routine for like five or six or maybe his entire uh, career from college all the way through pro ball. And, um, you know, I think it, it, that question needed to be asked. Like, how, like, I know that you feel your arm isn't taxed enough, but do you really know that it isn't? Like, can you really measure, like, the glycogen, you know, depletion in your arm and the fatigue? How do you know that if you stop doing what you're doing the day after and you just change a little bit? Maybe you do 10 less throws than long toss, and then maybe the next week you do 20 less throws. And some weeks you don't do any. You really test it. Are you sure there's not maybe a little fatigue in there that we could get rid of, and then maybe your velocity comes up a little bit, and then you get what you want? Um, and maybe he did test this, and maybe he went back to it and found it. I don't know for sure. But that was my thought process, process with all that. It seemed like he put a lot of work, a very heavy extra workload onto his arm, and I didn't know that he'd ever gotten to the bottom of whether that was a good or bad thing for him. It was just sort of a thing that he'd always done. So, you know, you kind of double back to this idea of the minimum effective dose. How little can you do and still get the desired result that you want? That's what you want to do because with baseball, you don't want to make it to the major leagues for one day. Everyone wants to make it to the major leagues just for one day, but when they get there, they want to stay there. You know, I don't know anyone who says, oh, this is great, I made it, I can just, I don't care if I get destroyed today. No, when you get there, you want to stay, and you want to become successful at every level that you get to, and I think a lot of these guys think that, I don't think they really think far enough in advance And the fact that there is wear and tear on everything. You know, there's no race car in the world that can be built so efficiently that it won't have to be rebuilt after each race you know some of these cars are rebuilt after every single one and to think that the human body is different that by doing more that we condition ourselves that we can just do it infinitely is just absolutely ridiculous you know with the ucl and the pitching elbow it's a constant wear and tear every throw takes the ucl past its tearing uh, limit but because of the form flexors and and uh all the muscles in the surrounding the elbow, it attenuates the stress and allows a very overwhelmed ligament to still do the job because it has all the you know other hands on deck. And so, when we're considering with all this stuff, you know, runners who run their whole career, they end up with arthritis in their knees. Many of them, some of them don't, but many of them do. You know, there's a lot of degenerative stuff. And so, when you say, okay, I'm going to lift like a power lifter for my entire college and my first handful of years of pro baseball. How do we know that's not wear and tear that's going to then run you aground six, seven years later in your major league career? Now you're 32 and you're breaking down instead of some other guy who's still going strong because he did less than you, you know? And that's, those are the questions that are hard to ask, 
And it's not out of laziness. It's not saying, hey, be lazy. It's saying, is this the proper dose for you? And so for young athletes who haven't yet built themselves up to say, yes, I am definitely strong enough to do the job of pitching a baseball at high speeds. I'm, I've tapped out. I've filled my strength training bucket. Well, they need to continue to push. And when they get to that set point, they need to then reevaluate, is my bucket overflowing? Am I trying to shove more water into this cup that's filled? Am I adding wear and tear needlessly to my body just to say that I'm the best at exercising, just to say that I'm the hardest worker out there? You want to be the smartest worker. You want to do the right things in the right dosage and nothing more. And that was a lesson that I learned the hard way. My first year in pro ball, I, you know, I had a good regimen, a good routine every year. But my first year, I was coming back from Tommy John. I got my first chance to play pro ball. And I was so excited, and I did not want to let it go. My arm felt like absolute death from the second start and beyond, pretty much. And I didn't have a routine. I, I, don't, I don't really know what I learned in college and when I learned it. But I didn't know how much to throw between starts. I'd never been on a five-day rotation before. Um, I knew that I liked long tossing. I knew that I had all these forearm exercises and all these shoulder exercises that I did in college that I had, a, I had seven days between starts, so I could just do tons of it. And, you know, I didn't seem like there were any ill effects, but suddenly I'm going 110 pitches. I'm throwing in the low 90s now instead of the upper 80s like I did in college. Um, I'm in higher stress environment. You know, pitching in front of three, 4,000 people is very different than 100 people, you know, at a, a University of Maryland-Baltimore County game. Um, everything about the job was different, and I had less rest than ever. And I'm trying to figure, okay, can I long toss on day two? Well, my arm feels horrible. Uh, should I still do this? And, like, you know, I used to get a bu two, bu two bullpens in. Can I even fit in one now? Like, do I just do a flat ground? Do I play catch? Do I throw every day? Do I take a day off? Like, I had no idea. And no one was really there to counsel me um, except just, like, other guys and my pitching coach to a small degree. But, you know, independent ball is an interesting animal where you're just sort of expected to figure it out on your own, and they don't really teach you or really get in your way. So you have a lot of freedom, but for young guys, it's, you know, you need some of that structure to get yourself on track. So my first two months, I was fluctuating. Every start, my velocity would go from 90 to 93 to 87 to 90 to 88 to 91 to 89 to 93 to 89 to 92, you know, down to 87 to 91. It would just fluctuate. It would not level off. And I remember I threw the best game of my life at that point. I threw a complete game, shutout. And I ended up throwing like maybe like 135 pitches. So it was a longer day, obviously. And uh, I did a ton of extra forearm, forearm care because I was worried that I put all that extra stress on my elbow, that I didn't want to blow my elbow out again. So I did extra sets of my forearm exercises, you know, the whole like six different directions, like flexion, extension, ulnar deviation, radial deviation, pronation, supination, all that stuff you do when you have Tommy John surgery or, you know, UCL injury. So I did extra sets of it, and then my next time out, I barely broke 90. I was like 86 to 90. Hadn't thrown a ball, but looked like that slow in a long time. And I was like, okay, well, at this point, the only thing that I did different between this start and the previous was the extra form stuff that I did. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that again next start. I'm going to cut back down to my normal dosage minus maybe like a third. 
And guess what? My velocity went back up. That was like 89 to 93. And I go, okay, all right, let's do the same thing I did last time, 89 to 93. Let's do the same thing I did last time, 90 to 93. 90, and then I was pretty consistent, you know, 90 to 93. Most starts, I wouldn't throw a ball below 90, sometimes not below 91. Um, and it was an exciting time for me, finally getting results, because I wanted to be a pitcher that always threw in the 90s. That's an important milestone. And it came from that trial and error, and it came from me doing less, not more. And it, it was a, a, really, a really valuable lesson because, number one, you have to figure out these routines for yourself so that you can turn in consistent results. And having consistent velocity is part of consistent results. Um, and also just form fatigue in general, it really hurts your dexterity. You don't feel your pitches quite as well. You just miss spots. Um, I learned that later when I was a reliever where if I pitched – you know, day one and I'm fresh, you know, everything's good. I throw hard. I, I feel like I can locate really well. I'm like, I'm on myself. If I throw on back-to-back days, the second day, velocity's still there, but my control's not. You know, I don't hit my spots as well. I miss much more often and by a wider margin of error. And then if I pitch three days a row, which I did a handful of times, I basically had nothing on the third day. I was down a little bit in velocity and then, Basically, I just didn't know where the ball was going to go, so I just threw it as hard as I could throw it for like a half of the plate and just hoped it made it there. Um, you know, and that really was just like mostly it felt like forearm dexterity, where the feel I had on the ball, you know, of your fingertips being the last thing, like the tires on the road, they just like weren't catching up to like get the ball to go where it wanted to go. So, you know, with all this, it just doubles back to the idea that this culture of heavy lifting and the minimum effective dose and filling your buckets and having finite training time to make yourself better. So again, for most pitchers, when they hit this milestone of 400 pounds, you know, on a deadlift, 300 pounds plus on a squat, 275 on a front squat, 12 good chin-ups, you know, 50 good push-ups in a row, you know, that's pretty much saying that, hey, like, you're a strong guy. Congratulations. You put in a lot of years of hard work. Um, you're big enough, you're strong enough, and you can do it. And then you need to probably look at yourself really hard and audit what other buckets are left unfilled. Do you spend any time meditating? Do you spend any time on your mental training? Do you spend enough time on your arm care or your flexibility or your pitch work or whatever it is? Um, but chances are you don't need to be putting more time and stress and joint stress you know, into heavy lifting. And a lot of people don't want to hear that. They want to just say, oh, heavy, you know, you can always make, you know, always make progress and your body will adapt. And it's just, you, you're, you're increasing your workload so your body can handle more stress. Well, okay. But you don't know that years down the road, that extra wear and tear is going to be worth it. You know, you might get zero miles per hour out of it. You might get one, you might get negative. You don't know. Um, but we also had a long time ago, Warbird Academy, we kind of figured out that there were some things that didn't really mix. And we pretty much defined them as high strain exercises. And it was things like, so basically when our pitchers start to get towards in season and they're throwing hard from flat ground or they're throwing bullpens in any capacity, we start to cut out all high strain arm activities, which include chin-ups, pull-ups, heavy deadlifts, so that's basically above their body weight on the bar, um, and then includes RDLs. We don't really do straight bar deadlifts ever at Warbird Academy because it's just a tool 
in the toolbox, and it's one of the more dangerous tools. And there's tons of other good exercises that are just as good at getting the glutes, the hamstrings, the back, the arms, all that stuff. Um, there's just as good of tools at accomplishing the same goals that the deadlift can accomplish. And a lot of people disagree with that, but you know, when you see some of these deadlifts on Instagram and coaches bragging about their kids and their athletes and their grown men, you know, deadlifting, oh, deadlift one rep max, PR, you know, 550, and this guy's round backing it all the way to the top. That's also going to have long-term ramifications. And any strength coach who's worth his salt should not be letting and certainly not be bragging and showing off sloppy, dangerous lower back form. And there's a lot of things when you're learning, and we show a lot of kids who do not have perfect form here at Warbird Academy, but they're still safe uh, in the big things. So no one round back deadlifts in our place ever. No one has a round back squat. No one back squats before they can front squat a pretty significant amount of weight. Um, we have a lot of standards in place, but with all this stuff, we eliminate these high strain exercises because basically we found that when you're holding a certain amount of weight in your hand or you're rowing a certain amount of weight, and that includes chin-ups and pull-ups and really heavy rows or fat grip rows, farmer's walks, heavy deadlift variations, there's so much stress flowing through your biceps, through your elbow, through your shoulders, but specifically the biceps that we get really barky elbows and really barky shoulders. And I just remember one year, this was probably five or six years ago, we had a lot of kids doing farmer's walks, which are one of the best overall strength builders, and they're just, they're amazing how they can change an athlete's just overall strength and body, but forearm strength is huge. You know, it's a huge thing for us, but when they're doing lots of farmer's walks while they're throwing bullpens or throwing close to full speed or full speed, farmer's walks were the definite culprit. As soon as we pulled them from the program uh, at the volume we were doing them, all the guys who were complaining of, you know, some bicep pain, some elbow pain, it all went away. So, you know, we call that research, call it just being a trainer. Um, what I call whatever you want. But then it started to dawn on us. Like, okay, what are other things that are probably a little bit too much for when a kid's throwing a lot? Again, chin-ups, tremendous strain, flowing through the elbow, uh, through the shoulder. Again, heavy, heavy, heavy deadlifting of any variety, whether it's an RDL, a trap bar, a straight bar, doesn't matter. We don't do any heavy fat grip rowing, which you have a very thick fat grip. Um, again, puts so much stress and pretty much like a two-joint action through the elbow. Um, and then heavy farmers walk, stuff like that. So all those things are things we cut out of our program when kids are throwing hard. And I've written about that before. But I just cannot understand how kids, you see them out there, and I say kids a lot, but athletes out there who are, you know, deadlifting 550 while they're throwing full speed bullpens. And it's like, you know, road to 100, bro. And it's like, okay, uh, I don't think that's a safe thing to do. And other people say otherwise, and that's fine. Um, but I think long term, a lot of that stuff's going to catch up with people. Because, again, if you're just constantly beating your body down and just wear and tear is a thing. So, anyway, that's, uh, that's kind of the way. It's kind of the way I see it. I don't know if you listen to that podcast by Mike Rowe. It's a good podcast. If you uh, like a short, a, sh a good, well-written short story um, with a good baritone voice, I highly check him. Highly recommend you check out Mike Rowe's podcast. It's pretty entertaining. Um, but anyway, that's it for tonight. Is heavy lifting good for pitchers? Again, I think it's uh, I think it's a, a widely debated topic. But again, you have to just kind of boil it down to 
is your bucket filled of strengths, you know, and uh, what's the minimum effective dose to get you what you want, whether it's adaptation, a performance goal, whatever it is, the minimum effective dose is what we want, not the, uh, the Kenny Bowers, the best at exercising dosage. See you next week.